one of the four books regarded as wisdom literature. And after Proverbs tells you all of the ways to live a wise life and the right things to do so that things will work out, Ecclesiastes follows immediately and says, except, you know, things basically never work out. <laughs> and, uh, and it's really hard to keep going when life feels meaningless and empty and all of that stuff. Uh, and yet, in the midst of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, the teacher, that's the person speaking is identified as the teacher throughout. It's probably Solomon. But uh, what I like to say is he comes up for air every once in a while. And you get these moments where he, he uh, sees the sunlight and realizes where meaning comes from. So our reading, we're going to look at uh, sort of a number of passages throughout chapters 3, 4, and 5 today, but our reading comes from chapters 4 and 5. And in a sense, these are two places that uh, the teacher comes up for air. So now here a reading from selected verses in Ecclesiastes chapters 4 and 5. Two people are better than one because they can reap more benefit from their labor. For if they fall, one will help his companion up. But pity the person who falls down and has no one to help him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they can keep each other warm. But how can one person keep warm by himself? Although an assailant may overpower one person, two can withstand him. Moreover, a three-stranded cord is not quickly broken. And in chapter 5. Just as there is futility in many dreams, so also in many words. Therefore, fear God. I have seen personally what is the only beneficial and appropriate course of action for people, to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all their hard work on earth during the few days of their life that God has given them, for this is their reward. To every man whom God has given wealth and possessions, he has also given him the ability to eat from them, to receive his reward, and to find enjoyment in his toil. These things are the gift of God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, we are, uh, we're here together, and uh, I feel grateful to be with my brothers and sisters, to be worshiping together, to join our voices in song together, to love you together, to learn to love you from my brothers and sisters. And, uh, and Lord, I, I pray that that would be increasingly true for each one here, um, and we recognize that when we gather in this place, that there are many things that distract us and that dilute our experience of that and, and many, thing, many reasons that we struggle. But I ask, Lord, that through your word and through your people and through this, this gathering, that you would open us up all the more to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I need to start by just getting on the same page for this sermon, making sure you know that I know 
that I am not breaking any new ground today. All right, so when I start getting into this and you're like, this sounds like uh, something I kind of know, good. Sometimes, uh, sometimes you don't uh, re you know, rip everything out. Sometimes you just maintain what's there. You know, sometimes you got to just water the trees that are already in the yard. <laughs> okay, so that's what we're doing. We're not breaking new ground. We're watering the trees. Um, there's uh, a lot of different ways that you can sort of set your mind when you go to read the Bible, when you go to try to understand what it's saying. One of those that's a, a simple way to read the Bible is to look for the no and the yes. All right, so what is this passage saying no to, and what is this passage saying yes to? And the, in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, and 5, there's there's a whole bunch of no, I think, and the part that I just read aloud to you is the yes, all right? So um, I, I really see two yeses in these passages. The first yes, it comes from that famous two are better than one passage, which, you know, is like a wedding passage for some people, especially since, you know, you're gonna, it's warmer to lie down together, which is kind of a wedding image. Um, but then it talks about a cord of three strands. It talks about helping each other when there's an assailant. Uh, this is a yes to community. It's a yes to human relationships, all right? The second yes, which is found in chapter 5, and, you know, particularly verses 7, 18, 19, is a yes to worship through gratitude. In other words, it's a yes to relationship with God. So here's what I'm going to be talking about today. Relationships with people and relationships with God. Wow, I know. Um, prepare to have your minds blown. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying Ecclesiastes, which is a book that grapples with all sorts of complexities and distortions that make life seem meaningless argues that the two places we really find meaning and peace and joy and well-being and contentment are in our relationships with one another and our relationships with God. God's people have agreed since long before the days of Jesus that the two greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God, yeah, love God. Yeah, you're saying it really well. I, I'm just going to summarize it. Love God, you know, with your whole self. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? The, so when, um, when the Pharisees came to Jesus asking him, what are the greatest commandments? They weren't trying to learn what the greatest commandments were. They were trying to figure out, is this guy orthodox? Does this guy understand the big point of scripture? It was a test. And Jesus didn't change anyone's minds that day. He just confirmed when he said the two greatest commandments that he was in line with the truth. So those are the two yeses. But in Ecclesiastes, these two yeses are buried inside a bunch of no's. And, um, and the no's may seem a little bit obvious too. I suspect that any thoughtful person would say, like Daddy Warbucks from the musical Annie, which I'm sure you all 
have in mind. My kids just performed in it, so I really have it in mind. Um, you know, what, here's what Daddy Warbuck says. He says, you know, I've been successful. I've made all the money, and I've, I've realized this is when he's about to adopt Annie. It's so sweet. Um, you know, I've realized that it doesn't matter how much you have if you don't have someone to share it with. You know, oh, roll the credits. It's a lovely, lovely thought. I suspect any committed believer would agree with the claim that there's no possible meaning in life outside of a relationship with God. And now that I've said a bunch of obvious things, I think we should recognize that we are regularly pulled away from our relationships with people and our relationship with God. Sometimes we don't even realize that things are pulling us away. And those ways that we get pulled away are what the are all of the no's in this passage. All right? What we need to hear from the teacher in this passage are his insights on how our relationships with one another and with God are distorted and therefore how we can remain in meaningful relationships. All right? So, one more clarification. Um, if God and other people exist, if you're not just alone floating in the universe randomly, that means everyone has some kind of relationship with people and with God. The, the question really is what sort of relationship it is. And that's what we're going to explore today. So, in chapters 3 and 4, we see um, some distortions on our relationships with one another. All right, we see ways that our relationships with one another drift toward meaninglessness, towards futility, all right? And I, I'm going to put those under three headings, injustice, toil, and pride. There's, there's lots of other ways, but those are the ones he talks about, injustice, toil, and pride. I'm going to be putting a bunch of scriptures on the board for us to look at. If you have a Bible, you can, you know, follow that way too. But injustice, here's an example of what he says about injustice in chapter 3, 16 and 17. I saw something else on earth. In the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of fairness, there was wickedness. I thought to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. For there is an appropriate time for every activity, and there is a time of judgment for every deed. Okay, here's what he notices. All right, people are supposed to enjoy and be grateful for each other, but instead, they're treating each other unfairly. They're treating each other like beasts. He goes on to describe what they don't realize is that, that humans are creatures, just like the animals that we observe. And yet what we're doing is we're placing ourselves over others and trying to control them. And, and you know, the wicked forget their creatureliness. And so they treat people unjustly. And that sounds bad, right? Like, uh, luckily, none of us are wicked like that, right? I mean, you guys, if you've heard me preach before, you know that's a setup. But all right, here's the deal. Normal people do this in subtle ways. We don't do it just in, in grand injustice, you know, the dictator controlling a group of people or, or joining the Nazis or whatever. No, no, no. Listen to chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Then I considered all the skillful work that is done. 
Surely it is nothing more than competition between one person and another. This is also profitless, like chasing the wind. So the teacher is arguing that we are drifting towards injustice when we take competitiveness too far. And that's probably saying it too lightly. And this is because I, I love being competitive. I mean, I, I love it. I, I, let's play a game together so I have a chance to win. I mean, that's, that's really fun for me. And yet I can take that too far. You know, I can think, you know, after we've played the game for the rest of the night, if I win, you're going to think of me as the winner. You know, and maybe the next day you're going to think, man, that guy's really good at Monopoly. He's really special. Like the, so we, we easily take competition too far. Um, you guys know many of us are, are training for, with Team World Vision, I have my branded water bottle here, um, for this, uh, we're running the, the Colfax half marathon, or if you're Jenny, running the full marathon. And um, it is, it's been a lot of training and it's a big race. And they're gonna, they're, you know, you can get online and find out where you rank amongst thousands of people. And I am so excited for that moment. I really am. And, and um, I easily forget that no one else cares at all. Like no one else cares. You know, I walk around waiting for people to ask me my time and no one asks me my time. Like what the heck, you know? <laughs> it's real fast, Dan. <clears throat> all right. I mean, like, uh, so uh, what I, find myself doing is I, you know, after the race, everyone's hanging out in this big field and, you know, we're hydrating and relaxing and talking about how it went. And I imagine a little time floating in a sign above my head. And I'm trying to figure out everyone else's little sign too, to know whether I'm better than them or not. You know, I, I had a friend years ago who worked in the, in the oil industry. He worked downtown. He took the, the light rail, uh, into town each day, and he knew that that he made more money than basically anyone else he saw. And he he told me one thing he struggled with is he would do that on the light rail. He would imagine, based on kind of little clues about how people's clothing, what it's that he would imagine a, a number of a, a money number above each person's head, and and he would just rank himself anytime in any crowd. We do that, we, we reduce people when we're competitive, when we own it, we, when we try to rank ourselves ahead of them. All right, if I believe that I matter more because I can run faster than you or make more money than you or I've been rated a better artist than you or, or, or have more YouTube followers than you or have a prettier wife than you or more, or more successful kids than you or, or more, a more peaceful house than you or whatever, if I can find something to rank myself ahead of you, and the list could go on forever, then I am living in the fantasy that you are like all of the other animals, but I have risen above. I'm outside of it. And as soon as I believe this, that my life somehow matters more than yours because of something like that, I am a slave to that idea. It's like the person who suffers the worst is the one living in that belief. It owns you. It owns your sense of well-being and value, and you will work at it 
desperately or else completely give in. And that's the second risk to community. He calls it toil, all right? And, it, and, and he balances toil with the idea of laziness. Listen to this. He says, um, first, the fool folds his hands and does no work, so he has nothing to eat but his own flesh. Better is one handful with some rest than two hands full of toil and chasing the wind. So again, I considered another futile thing on earth, a man who is all alone with no companion. He has no children nor siblings, yet there is no end to all his toil, and he is never satisfied with riches. He laments, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is futile and a burdensome task. So the teacher is envisioning two men here, two different people. The first has given up. I can't be better than people, so forget it. I don't care. I'm doing nothing. He stops toiling at all. And his idleness is eating him up. I think he's envisioning somebody starving because they're not working for their food. But but in our day and age, we can imagine someone literally sort of falling apart at the seams, you know, doing nothing and losing the ability to relate human to human or whatever. The second person is so fixated on his work that he finds himself completely alone and he knows it. He's lost everything. He's lost all of his relationships. He's Daddy Warbucks, but there's no Annie. No one to, to come and join him in his life. And this leads Solomon into his great reflection on community, this idea of a cord of three strands. But he doesn't bask in it too long because he knows that community, even when we taste it, is easily abandoned. And so right after this, he goes into a reflection about a young man who became the king. And this is the third thing that pulls us from community. It's pride. He says in 4.13, A poor but wise youth is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive advice. You know, I, I don't know, but I know that this is an autobiographical statement for Solomon. If you know the story of Solomon, he started as a young man. He, you know, um, you know he, amongst all of David's kids, Solomon was the one anointed to be the next king. Solomon has this, experience, this sort of dream experience where God says, you can ask me for whatever you want, and he asks for wisdom. But if you follow Solomon's story, by the time he's old, he has sort of drifted from wisdom. And he's, he's introduced other worship of other gods into Israel. He's, he's done all sorts of political marriages. You know, I don't know exactly how it works, but he's got thousands of wives and concubines that he's somehow connected to. Um, it's, you know, that's I don't understand that culture, but Solomon is perhaps envisioning his own life. When I was young, I was wise. And how does he describe wisdom? The wise is someone who's open to advice. It's that simple. The wise is someone who is open to advice, whereas the foolish one no longer listens to others. What is that talking about? Community, right? community. So injustice, toil, and pride, they will not allow us to love our neighbor. They will keep us 
from community. We think maybe sometimes they bring us together, but if you're ranking yourself or, or if you're overworking or, or if you're not willing to listen, you are alone, even in a crowd. You are alone. We separate ourselves from people to conquer them, convinced that our hearts will be full if we achieve what we seek. And Solomon is one guy who experienced it. He achieved everything he wanted, and he felt like it was empty. It was not good. In fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, before sin is introduced into the story, God says there is one thing in the garden that is not good. What is it? The man is alone. That is the, at the heart of, gosh, the, if, if the enemy can do one thing to us to, to steal the meaning and joy from our life, it's to isolate us. And friends, when we do things to one another to isolate one another, we are playing into his hands. You know, we, we've been praying this uh, assurance of pardon, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist the devil by opening ourselves up to one another. That's one way we do it. It is not good for man to be alone. Throughout the study of Ecclesiastes, I've been reading uh, a remarkable book written by a Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. It's a famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. Surely some of you have read that book. His countrymen in the concentration camps uh, often gave up hope when they began to believe that they could expect nothing else from life. Everything that gave them identity or whatever had been taken from them. And one of the simple things that even in the camps, he was a psychologist, and once in a while he would be called upon to effectively counsel other people. Could you, can you imagine? You're in secret. You know, the, it's the, your few hours to sleep, and yet you get to counsel other people. And uh, these people are, they, they're, they're considering suicide because they think everything that gives them meaning has been taken from them. And he would often simply ask, okay, you can expect nothing else from life, but does life expect anything else from you? Life meaning did not come from what they owned or what they had, but from what they gave away. That's how they could be connected to one another. And then... He tells this story, and I think I've got it on a slide. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offered sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. These are people who remained open to community, even in the worst imaginable circumstances. They chose to share the benefit of their labor, even when it was less than what they needed to survive. Hmm. So these distortions keep us from one another. There are also distortions discussed, particularly in chapter 5, that, that keep us from God that keep us from being connected to God. And I'm going to summarize those under three headings. Religion, irreligion, and greed. Religion, irreligion, and greed. So 
Religion. Here's what I mean by religion. This is from the beginning of chapter 5. He says, be careful what you do when you go to the temple of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer a sacrifice like fools, for they do not realize that they are doing wrong. Do not be rash with your mouth or hasty in your heart to bring up a matter before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Just as dreams come when there are many cares, so the rash vow of a fool occurs when there are many words. Now what's happening here? Solomon observes those who are performing before God. They go into the temple and they know that if, or they believe that if they do the right thing, if they say the right thing, if they appear devout enough, if they, if they raise their hands and cry enough, if they're on their knees enough, if they promise enough of their life, that, that they believe that if they do that, God will bless them. God will respond to them positively. God, in other words, is a means to an end. The one through whom I can gain power or provision or protection. That's what they're, when they're offering their vows, you know, he goes on to say, these people have to come back and beg the priest, say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I can't fulfill what I vowed. I mean, that, that's what they're doing. They're living in the hype of religion, the human-centered practice of devotion that does not actually treat God as a living and personal being, but instead as a big program that we can hack in the sky, right? Maybe a, a referee who enforces the rules, and if you get on his good side, he won't blow the whistle on you as often. It's the NBA playoffs, so I have to say that. Jesus examined most of the religious leaders in his day and saw exactly this sort of behavior. He's constantly calling them hypocrites. You are praying the right prayers. You're saying the right things. You're, you're carrying yourself in the right way. And it's not a humble approach. It's a way to place yourself above others. It's a demand on God and a demonstration of, of your superiority. That is religion in the bad sense. But we can also go too far in the other direction. Irreligion, irreligion. This is assuming that I am not under God. Here's, uh, um, here's what he says. If you see the extortion of the poor or the perversion of justice and fairness in the government, do not be astonished by the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher official. And there are higher ones over them. Here's what people forget when they begin to live as if there are no consequences. They forget that God is there, that God is just, and that God will judge. And the moment we forget this, the moment we think the top person is the final authority, we've drifted into irreligion. The one, religion, it seeks to use God. The other one, irreligion, feels free to use people because if God's there, he won't notice. Either neglect, either one neglects to fear God. The final distortion of worship is familiar even in today's passage. 
it, it really, I don't need to explain it or defend it. So we've talked about religion, we've talked about irreligion, and the final distortion is greed. Greed. All right, greed, taking care of myself. Here's a, here's a nice little passage on greed, 5, 10 to 12. He says, the one who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. This also is futile. When someone's prosperity increases, those who consume it also increase. So what does its owner gain except that he gets to see it with his eyes? The sleep of the laborer is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the wealth of the rich will not allow him to sleep. In the New Testament, Paul will list greed in, in a, a, the, a list of bad things called a vice list. But in the list of bad things, he, cut, you know, he lists each thing with one word. But with greed, he immediately says greed, which is idolatry. He's saying that in greed, we have turned a thing into the ultimate thing. If I can just have this, I will be happy, satisfied, content. I will have meaning in my life. That's what idols do. I want to read to you this fantastic description of an idol from uh, Andy Crouch, one of my favorite authors. He says, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In other words, and he's quoting someone else here, but he says, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. And we continue to pay. Those of you who wrestle with addiction in your life and know it and have fought against it, you know that that thing has demanded everything from you. And you know that it gives nothing. And still there's this this voice in your head that says, maybe the next time, maybe the next time, it will give me what I seek. Solomon has more wealth than anyone in history up to that point. He's probably the, the wealthiest person on the planet when he's alive, and he knows it will not give him what he needs. Apparently, he can't even sleep at night. He observes those who devote their lives to it, and he knows they will never be satisfied. They will never rest. So without saying the word, I think, here's the curveball of the sermon. I think that, that this portion of Ecclesiastes about people and God is really a call to Sabbath rest. I think that that's what's happening in this. Last week, Stephen quoted Dallas Willard, who said that many people treat their faith like a rowboat, and they're just fighting so hard to get the boat where they need to go. Whereas what, if we understand the gospel, what our faith really is, is a sailboat. We put up the sail and catch the wind and let it carry us. The danger of toil as opposed to, to good hard work, especially when it's mixed with greed, is that it never stops. It never stops. 
from the first page of the Bible to the first day of liberty from Egypt to the first day in the promised land to the first day after the death of Jesus, the Sabbath stands as the package through which God gives his good gifts. We can experience love for one another and love for God when we stop to receive them with gratitude. That's what Sabbath is designed to do. Ecclesiastes 5 invites us to repent from the insane attempt to use God. And instead, it calls us to approach him with fear, he's the judge, and with gratitude because he's the giver. And he gives good gifts. Without Sabbath, I'm not sure true gratitude, like a a life that is infused with gratitude, is possible. If you don't stop on a regular cycle in your week to just to stop trying to make things happen for yourself, but to receive the good gifts that God has given, if you don't do that, I'm not sure you will find true gratitude and true joy in your life. Without Sabbath, we continue to toil or we give up and we do nothing at all. You know, the balance of Sabbath is six days of of good work. Without Sabbath, we think it's on us to mean something, to earn something, to provide, because everything fades and the future is uncertain. The safest possible route is to save as much as you can, to do as much as you can, to push and push and push and push, and it will never feel like enough. If you are, wor- if, if you are feeling that, friends, let me challenge you to pick a day of the week Saturday and Sunday are great options. You know, make worship part of your Sabbath where you do not try to make things happen for yourself. Instead, you receive with joy the, the warmth of the sun or a cool breeze or, or community with one another. Without Sabbath, we are bound to fall into injustice, competition, toil, laziness, and most certainly pride. We will think it is all about ourselves. We become forced to view the world as a violent jungle where we have to fight for everything. It's a dangerous place. But a true Sabbath is when we commit a day to community gratitude, where we say thank you to God for what he's provided. Without Sabbath, no matter how much time you spend pursuing other people, you will experience a deep, unsettled loneliness because you can't, you because you aren't ever just receiving them for who they are. You're trying to do something in them, make something of them. And that becomes injustice really quickly. Solomon was the anointed son of King David. His kingdom boasted a temple which, if it still stood, would be one of the the wonders of the ancient world still today. His writings, both his own and those that were written in, in the tradition of Solomon, still influence millions of people all over the world. I mean, we're talking about Ecclesiastes. Our kids are upstairs talking about Proverbs. Like, it's Solomon Day at Littleton Christian Church, all right? And yet he struggled. What is the point of it all? Did anything that he did have any impact on justice or happiness? Did his luxuries give him the contentment that he clearly longed for? It seems at his low point, he felt like the answer was no. I don't know if any of this matters. And yet, 
he pointed towards a true and better Solomon, another son of the king, who was in many ways the anti-Solomon. He owned no property. He laid down his power. He did not write a book. He did not conscript anyone into his army or construct a palace. What did he do? Friends, he walked through the huts and he gave his last piece of bread away. That's what he did. Viktor Frankl uh, quotes Dostoevsky, a, a, a Russian novelist, who says, I just, I, I just want my sufferings. I, I just want to be worthy of my sufferings. And when Frankel talks about those guys who many of them died within days after giving away their bread, he says they were worthy of their sufferings. And no one has found deeper meaning in being worthy of his sufferings than the one who gathered his disciples around a table and explained what his sufferings would mean. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, sitting around his table with his friends, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take this and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What was he doing? He was living in true community, giving himself away to others, putting himself under his followers who would betray him and living in the fear of God and in gratitude to what God would do. So with gratitude, my brothers and sisters, I invite you to come. Come to the table of the Lord. See his example of how to love one another and love God, and let it, let it metabolize into your very lives today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we prepare to come to this table, I ask that you forgive me, forgive us, for the ways we are in competition with each other, for the ways we are obsessed with our toil, or stuck in laziness, for the ways we try to impress you and use you, and for all the ways we live as if you don't notice. Lord, forgive us. Lord, set those things aside in our lives so that we can love one another and love you as you intended. In Jesus' name, amen.